0: and how bias gets in the way of decisions within organizations. Kevin Hannigan, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Really looking forward to this one. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're in the Northeast. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about data literacy and how bias gets in the way of decisions within organizations. I think we all strive to be data-driven people. Uh, We want to use relevant information to inform the decisions that we make. Uh, But bias is just that thing that's constantly there, Uh, implicit bias, unconscious bias, Is always there, even when we have data to inform the decision making um, in front of us, we still interpret that data through our biases. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit, try to better understand how we can better leverage data uh, to mitigate the, the bias that we have and hopefully lead to better more inclusive, more uh, equitable decision-making for everyone within our organizations. As we get started, I wanted to share Kevin's bio with everybody. Kevin Hannigan is a senior leader who likes to use data and analytics to transform, innovate, and continuously improve organizations to make them the best they can be. His passion is the intersection of business, technology, learning, and psychology. He believes the world is constantly evolving, and we should always be evolving and improving ourselves in businesses and in our personal life. Through many years of working in a variety of businesses and industries, Kevin has been able to leverage technology and psychology, along with data and analytics, to improve organizational performance and transform businesses into high-performing organizations. He frequently speaks and writes on topics of data-informed decision-making, the future of learning, and growth mindset. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife, Shannon, and their four children. Fantastic. Great to have you with me. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with me and share your insights with me and my audience. Anything else you would like to share before we dive on into the conversation today?
1: No, that's it. I think my dogs would upset if I mentioned my kids and not my two dogs. We have two dogs as well living at home with us, a Swiss <laughs> mountain dog and a basset hound. But other than that, that's a thorough intro. So hopefully I live up
0: to it. Wonderful. And I, I am a dog person as well. We have two dogs. Um and I always kind of feel bad when we take our like annual family pictures. My wife never wants the dogs in the pictures, uh, but I feel like they're part of the family. They are. Um, so we have plenty of pictures with the dogs, but we, we don't include them in our official family pictures that get hung on the wall uh, for whatever reason, you know, but anyways, dogs are wonderful. Great uh, addition to the family. sounds like you have a big family, lots of kids. Uh, I'm sure life is always adventurous for you, uh, but I applaud you for that. Uh, and if you're ready, we'll go ahead and dive yeah. on in. Why don't we do start with just defining data literacy? Uh, what do you mean by data literacy? Uh, more than just being able to interpret, you know, a, a spreadsheet or a, a table or a chart or a figure that you might see in a report or in the newspaper or something like that. What is data literacy to you?
1: Absolutely. It, and it's a great question because I think it's often misunderstood. So before answering that, when when I say data, don't just think numbers, don't just think spreadsheets. Like data could be what we call qualitative. It could be, you know, you go to Amazon, you decide which coffee maker, mine broke recently, I have to look at the reviews, that's data. So it's, you're inundated with numbers and information, data literacy, the, the definition that I use and I'll break it down into more digestible chunks is the ability to read, work with, communicate and challenge data. The challenge one is interesting. So what I mean by that is at its highest level, it's about critical thinking and common sense with data. So you read a story and the story usually can tell what the person, the actor, whoever is doing based off their context. You can read their body language. You can read the words before it. Data is, is objective. It's black and white, but it, it's your response to it. What does it mean? What context? And so I kind of think of it as there's a puzzle. The data has a story. Our job is to try to understand what that story is. And data literacy is about finding that story. It's the opposite of data literacy is you see a piece of information and no one is sharing it willfully to be malicious or wrong, but it's missing context. But you just treat it as true and you act on it. So data literacy is about at that point challenging it, right? And you mentioned the word bias. It's hard because that gets in the way. We think it's true, but you you see a number, that number could mean 1 million different things. Data literacy is about really trying to get as close to what it's really trying to tell you. Um, And just one thing on the definition, it could tell you all of those things. What's really important about data literacy is what are you trying to ask? It, It starts with you know what's the goal? Because again, if I have twenty different questions, the same data, I'm going to have twenty different answers. All of them are right, but they're only right to that specific question. So it really starts with what am I trying to do with it, and then you see the data points and in, in trying to challenge it. So again, critical thinking with data with information to ultimately make better decisions.
0: Critical thinking with data to make better decisions, absolutely. And I couldn't help but think about a, a personal experience that I had i uh, you know i I think long time listeners of the podcast know from time to time i I mention that in addition to doing things like this podcast and the consulting work that I do, I'm a university professor, and so I'm in the higher ed um environment day in and day out, and just like many organizations we're trying to make data driven decisions um and just like many organizations we've had challenges during the pandemic uh, higher ed has and enrollments and students uh, keeping them safe and and shifting to virtual versus bringing people back on campus physically and everything. And that's had an impact on enrollment numbers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I won't bore everyone with all the details, um, but it was interesting. So about a year ago, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of the pandemic and enrollment numbers have dipped a little bit. It, in fact, pretty much most universities enrollments had dipped uh, and we were actually a little bit more level than most. So that was good. Um, but uh, the 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 central uh, institutional research office had crunched some numbers on enrollments by program and had presented them. And so I'm sitting in this meeting and the, for the very first time, I see a list pop up of the, the programs with the steepest decline in enrollments by percentage. Uh, and I see one of the programs in my department pop up on that list. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. A, nobody's talked to me about this. Um, B, it doesn't make sense. Like there, I immediately I had like 10 questions about like how could this possibly be? Um, and and I start to ask those questions. They don't really have answers to them other than This is what the data says. So based on this, we're going to be making decisions about resources and about hiring and et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, this one data point ended up informing all these other decisions, strategic um, uh, direction, all these sorts of things um, without a willingness to actually challenge the data Uh, to add context to it, to answer the questions related to it. And in the minds of the people who were presenting it, they were just saying, hey, data doesn't lie. This is fact. We're just seeing how this stacks up. And because they weren't willing to engage in this kind of broader, um, challenging conversation, uh, my department was negatively impacted by those perceptions. And it took a good year to try to reverse what uh, had happened some of the decision making that had happened based on that one meeting and the data that was presented now was it malicious no nobody had malicious intent i think everyone was trying to do the best they could with the data they had all of that was good and i and i applaud anyone who's trying to make data driven decisions but it gets to what you were just saying that there there seemed to be an inability or an un, or unwillingness to to Dig a little bit deeper into it, and to try to better understand what was actually happening behind the data, uh, and to even address things that in, in this particular case there was actually data corruption issues, and there was there was uh, problems that were skewing it in a way that uh, made it inaccurate. I don't know, so I think we see those types of things in organizations all the time, though. So my example is a specific uh, example to higher ed. Uh, But my guess is listeners are thinking, oh yeah, I've been in meetings like that where things have come up and all of a sudden I'm put on defensive and I'm trying to spend my time dealing with what has been presented rather than having a a good, meaningful conversation. Right?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's a great example, and to, to juxtapose that, we'll use an example that makes absolutely no sense to to show how the brain works. It's fascinating. So uh, you mentioned I live in the Northeast in New England. There is data that shows that as people more ice cream is consumed, there are more shark attacks. Right? It, it's data. So to your point, it's declining. The data is the data. So do we stop selling ice cream in New England, or do do we move or what? That seat sounds ludicrous. So people are going to say, interesting. And like, if you really challenge it, what usually happens is there's something else that's a cause and effect. Well, what's the cause there? It's the weather. When it's hot, people eat ice cream. When it's hot, people go on the beach. You're not going to get bit by a shark on the land, most likely. So in your example, you're questioning it. But because the people that showed you the data, it sounds rational. It sounds logical. The brain wants to say it's rational and logical. When you hear it in another situation, you're like, "That can't be. It's got to be." And that's why bias and decision making is so hard. Is those people that showed it to you, they, like you said, it wasn't malicious. They said the data is the data, and you know, and you were good to question it. And sometimes it's it's frustrating because you you have to you know plead your case and show systemically why it's that. And I just wish if everyone would just say, "In what situation could this data not be interpreted this way?" it would be a
0: better yeah. world for everyone. Yeah, and the correlation versus causation uh, yeah. argument, right? Which is a great another one. I remember this even as so this this was back when I was living in the Pacific Northwest when I was a teenager and I remember reading the newspaper and seeing a study like I was even as a teenager, like a 16 year old, I remember being baffled by this and thinking it was so stupid. But it it was a story in the paper about a researcher who had discovered that eating more hamburgers uh, reduced your risk of dying from cancer. Uh, And can you think of a confounding variable there (laughs) that, you know, you eat more hamburgers, it increases your chance of dying from heart disease, which means you're probably not dying from cancer. And so these types of silly things happen all the time, and. We don't always know what we don't know, so sometimes it's hard to to recognize there might be another variable impacting, or there might be bias in influencing the way we're interpreting. The point is, like you said, critical thinking. Just make sure that we're willing to have the hard conversations. We're willing to push, willing to push back, to ask the questions. If we if we're willing to do that, uh, then we can get to the bottom of what the data is really telling us, and at least make uh, better informed decisions. Um, and and I wanted to talk a little bit more about the brain and how the brain works when we're making decisions. I know in in your bio, I was talking about um, your background in psychology. Uh, tell us a little bit about about how the brain works and how these implicit and and uh, unconscious biases uh, are functioning within our brain as we're making decisions.
1: It's fascinating. And just as a takeaway to anyone, I think it's probably the number one business skill that I have learned throughout the years is how the brain works. Because if you understand that you can understand why people do things that they do. And then when you understand why you can help coach and improve, but at a a very high level, the neuroscience, we are inundated with senses and information all the time. If we were going to consciously process that our brains would overheat, we'd need to sleep like 30 hours a day and it doesn't exist. So through the years, the brain has come up with with mechanisms. It's it's a really powerful supercomputer, but it it does have flaws and shortcuts. And so some of those shortcuts are, it decides what of those things coming in are relevant to us and not, and how does it decide? Well, it decides partly due to past experiences. So the old analogy, if you saw a commercial with a, you wanted to get a white Jeep Cherokee, you're gonna start seeing white Jeep Cherokees all over the place. No, you're not seeing more of them. It's just your brain said it's relevant now, which is really fascinating. But you, you see it, process it, and then it starts to try to make connections. And when it cannot make a connection, there are two things could happen there. The first thing is it could make a connection and it could say, okay, this, hap- this similar situation happened five years ago and this was the action. And then it brings it to our conscious working memory and, and we act. Well, five years ago is very different time. Things could have changed, especially in the business world. The other thing it could do is it goes back there and it says, well, I can't find a direct connection. It wants to find one, so it makes one. And sometimes those ones that it makes are not actually correct, and it's about then challenging the outputs. But the brain, really powerful, it takes all these things and it uses your past experiences, which is why when I talk about diversity and inclusion, the power behind it is Someone else is going to have a different brain experience and pass. So they're going to have potentially a different output. Wouldn't it be really cool to understand your thought, their thought, everyone else's thought in a 360 fashion? And maybe you figure out that story, but we're going to be tunnel visioned. Um, you know, quick example to, to highlight that when I was growing up, uh, the neighbor, red hair, would always shoot BB guns at her house, hated it. Didn't realize it for years. I was stereotyping. Every time I saw a retina, stay away. And then my second kid came out with flaming red hair, and I was like, oh, they're not bad. He's actually the best out of my kids. He's great. The problem was my brain had a bad experience and it wasn't consciously telling me, you don't like redheads. It was doing it on my behalf and I didn't challenge it. And that's usually how stereotypes happen and these implicit biases. So when you do that, long story short, and then it leads to a decision, which you would say is less than rational because it tried to find a connection that wasn't there. That's usually when we see these biases. Like you said, it's not willful, but it's actually worse than when it is because you don't know always to check it. You just assume it's true.
0: Exactly, yeah. So unless you're challenging your assumptions and your biases and just constantly self-reflecting on what's going on and why you're thinking the way you're thinking, inevitably you're gonna have biases that are are driving decision-making and your behaviors that you probably would be uncomfortable with if you were fully aware of them. (laughs) So it just, you know, surround yourself with good people who are willing to point things out to you, uh, practice regular... Mindfulness and self-reflection, and 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 those sorts of things, so that you can uh, shrink the the size of that unknown um, sphere. You know, like you have better, broader understanding of what's going on. All of that's important. Uh, a couple, there's so many biases, and you can look. You can look up lists. You know, Google uh, cognitive bias, and there's a whole long list of all these different biases. But ones I see all the time uh, are things like confirmation bias or yeah. uh, motivated reasoning. Uh, and so you want, uh, you, you only pay attention to the evidence that supports what you already think and wh- what you already believe, and you ignore the contradictory evidence. We see that all the time in politics. We see that all the time in in uh, all all sorts of realms. And it happens in organizations too. It happens with the leaders all the time. Um, so confirmation bias. Let's be aware of that. and Let's try to challenge that. Motivated reasoning. Again, you're, you're, you're really motivated to have a particular outcome. And so you start to shape and and interpret everything that's around you in a way that supports what that pre-desired outcome is. And again, you're not always even aware of this, right? A lot of times this is all happening in the back of your brain and, uh, behind the scenes. Um, but unless you can take the time, pause and, and pay attention to it, you're never going to be able to uh, counteract it. And we've we've said it already. We'll say it again. It's important to recognize that usually this is not malicious. Usually this is not intentional. Uh, most of the time, I think people are doing the best they know how, trying to be uh, do right by others and be good people uh, and interact with other people in 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 positive ways. Um, but all of the prejudice, all of the bias, all of the discriminatory feelings and practices, all the stereotyping, all those things uh they they come from these uh this this place of of the mental shortcuts that our our brain makes as you were just describing and that means though that we can become aware of them we can even Absolutely. create new neural pathways and rewire our brain to to change the way those biases take hold of us in the way we make our decisions if we're intentional about it What do you see? You know, I, I just mentioned some of the ways that individuals can try to be a little bit more aware of their individual biases. But if we if we zoom out a little bit, we look at the macro level. Um, there are organizational biases built into the systems, the policies, practices, procedures of an organization that then self perpetuate themselves. Um, how can we become better aware, either of individual bias, but also of those organization level biases?
1: Yeah, I'll start with the individual and move to the organization. Like a good example, you mentioned confirmation bias. Another one that that I see a lot in organizations and individuals is just whatever you see first, you tend to anchor with that and stick with it. And so, I'll give you a quick example. A lot of people shop on Amazon or wherever where there's reviews. I do it all the time. I mentioned I needed a new toaster, so if I go and I look at a, uh, I'm sorry, a new coffee machine, and I go and look. The first review might say "piece of junk." Well, I don't realize that, but that's my first impression. So I see another review that's like, this is the best thing since sliced bread, buy this. My first response unconsciously is it must be a bot. Can't be real. Someone said it's a piece of junk. And and that's kind of the anchoring of what you're dealing with there. Um, On the flip side, you might have a scenario where someone says, this is a piece of junk. I don't understand this. And then later on, a, a user might have a review that says, you know, That person didn't read the user manual. They weren't using it right. You're always asking those questions. So at the individual level, work with different people, get diverse perspectives, ask the question, in what situation is this information or data not true, or could it not be true? And then a big thing I'm a big fan of is show your work. If you have those assumptions, if you write them out, a lot of times you're going to write and be like, oh, that's an odd thought process. Why did I think this? Why did I do that? Um, it's even harder at the organization because, at the organization, you're dealing with a culture. So, there are some people that think bias is voodoo and magic and it doesn't exist. And they might not, they might think like organizations now should be like they were run in the 50s, where it's very hierarchical. You don't challenge your boss, it's seen as disrespectful. And so, you might have a different opinion, but you don't feel like you can voice it because it's not in that environment. So a lot of things that we work with organizations on is to make them aware how this can make them have less than ideal decisions. It can lower the bottom line and give them strategies like role-playing and setting up different groups to be working on these decisions and avoid this thing you call groupthink, which is where everyone else thinks this is the right answer. I must be wrong. I must be doing something wrong. I don't want to challenge them. I'm just going to go along with it. Um, can really ruin organizations, but setting up different teams to work on things, making sure everyone's voice is heard. Um, One last thing that I, I implore everyone does is if you think about what industries do it well, think about scientists and doctors. They follow the scientific method. They, they come up with a hypothesis. Well, my hypothesis is our sales are declining because we don't have as many leads or my father's my coffee machine broke because it's not made properly well enough. Do everything in your power to find information, to disprove that. But our brain, because then we consciously do it. Whereas our brain is going to say, aha, that user said the machine doesn't work well. There's my point. I'm done. I'm not buying it. Or in business, someone's like, well, yeah, the lead generation stinks. Well, that's not an analytic answer. It's not qualitative. Just don't listen to those or not just listen to them, but listen to the opposite side. Um, until you don't have any other challenges then you can assume it's true so use the scientific ma- method in life i use it not for every decision like where am i going to eat for dinner but you know most individual tactical life decisions i i that's what i do is i look for information to disprove it um easier said than done because you have to be aware that bias exists to know yeah. to disprove it but follow a formal formula and process
0: yeah absolutely uh, coming back to the scientific method, I think that's a g- great way to frame this. Uh, and maybe that gets at my next question and, and maybe the last question we have time for today. How do we turn the data that's around us, whether it's in a dashboard, we have quantitative data or we have the qualitative stuff, uh, whatever form the data is in, how do we turn that data into wisdom in actionable wisdom?
1: I would say, it, we could speak forever, the, the one biggest takeaway I would say is, the data has a story. What you need to do first is find out what is the question, what is the decision. So it can, if you just veer slightly, like if someone says, "How is my marketing campaign?" you can't answer that. compared to what? What time frame? What does good look like? What's the success criteria? So framing the question of what you want to do um think about with covid right people were looking at all the information and data on the news and ultimately they had to make decisions so the question would be is it safe to send my kids to school or should they remote school is it safe to go to the supermarket or should i use instacart is it safe to go on family holidays well at the end of the day you needed to come up with a model that the question wasn't is it safe nothing's safe it's what risk is acceptable so for me with covid my my risk was. I don't want my kids to be hospitalized. I don't want to be hospitalized. And if you ask the right question, it's going to help you frame the right data. I'll just give you one other famous example. I don't know if it's an urban myth or not. The story goes, a a restaurateur, a world famous one was opening up a restaurant and he was hiring um, chefs and his team was interviewing chefs and they found someone who five-star meals, does everything great. They're like, we're going to hire the chef. All the data was correct for them. They made the right decision based off of what they thought the the question was. In reality, the, the chef failed miserably. It's because the restaurant they were opening was more of a quick service restaurant. The goals of what they were looking for was turnaround speed, not just quality. They only focused on quality. They had all of the data available, but they had a preconceived notion about what the question was. So the best way to turn into wisdom is start with ask the right question.
0: I love it. I love it. Kevin, this has just been a great conversation. We could go on and on Uh, the fascinating topic and one that I would love to have you back on to, to explore further. Um, But we're going to have to close up for today before we wrap up. I wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience, how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, your team, and then give us the final word on the topic for today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you're interested in connecting, um, go to my website, kevinhannigan.com. Um, find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only one other Kevin Hannigan and they're not in United States. So it should be me. Um, There's links there to books and seminars and podcasts and other things. And just the one takeaway, we say data literacy. We talked about like correlation. This is for everyone. This is not someone who's a data scientist. You don't have to do the analytics or the statistics. You have to interpret it. So anytime you make a decision based off an Amazon review, based off what you see on the news or the weather, is it going to rain? you're using data literacy, hopefully.
0: Yeah, well said. Kevin, thank you so much. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Kevin and his team can do for you. Let's all be a little bit more data literate so we can make better decisions and keep our biases in check. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. (laughs) you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast?